In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. So hi, Matt. Hey, N. <laughs> What's going on? Oh, you know, I just thought I had this great idea for a show. Uh-huh. Tell me everything. It reminds me of when on The View, that's how The View used to start. Barbara Walters would go, I had this idea for a show. Six women. Oh, it did start that way, didn't it? The, the <laughs> yeah. little promo. Uh-huh. Yeah, as soon as I said it, I was like, where's that from? Um, <laughs> well, yeah, here we are um, from our own homes recording the first episode of our brand new true crime television. What, what are we going to call it? A true crime law and order themed podcast? I think it's like true crime with a dash of fiction. Mm. And uh, a, a a soupçon of humor. <laughs> a what? <laughs> I, uh, it's like a. I think it's a French word. Oh, um, God. But here's the bad thing: I have no idea how to spell it, so I don't know what word to Google. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's s u s o u p, and then it's got a c with a little uh, like squiggle below it for uh-huh. for the letter that's not in English. It's not a uh-huh. letter that's found in the English alphabet, um, and it's soupçon. I'm not French, so that could be entirely incorrect, but it means a very small amount. Well, a da- so maybe a dash? A dash. <laughs> a pinch? What did I say at first? I said, a, a, I said a, a true crime podcast with a dash of fiction. Let's stick with dash. Okay. Like Stacy Dash <laughs> from Clueless. Exactly. Or like Mrs. Dash, the spice. Mrs. Dash is such a good spice for things like chicken salad. Yeah. Don't they make different ones, though? Don't they make different, like, varieties? Do they? Like a poultry and, like, a beef or whatever. I, I don't really know why I'm talking about Mrs. Dash. I haven't bought Mrs. Dash in probably 15 years. Well, uh, on the Mrs. Dash website, I see no less than, like, 25 different seasonings right now. So I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> oh, good, good. Anyway. Well, in any event, um, I guess we would say, I like that. It's a true crime podcast. How about a true crime law and order podcast with a dash of fiction and a heavy hand of levity <laughs> comedy that, just, that rolls right off the tongue i think that's <laughs> our our tagline really you nailed oh God, it we really probably should have thought about this i think should i was we just, just gonna include, ask the same question inc- should we include the solid 11 minutes of workshopping we just did or it's 10 minutes we? and 55 <laughs> seconds <laughs> um i I mean, let's not include all 10 minutes. Um, I think a little bit of it would be fun. If not at the very beginning, maybe at the end of the episode. Yes. Okay, great. So, Matt, this is the first episode of our brand new podcast. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Yeah. Uh, What's the name of it? Oh, we should have decided that. I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) This is Ripped from the Headlines. It is, which is the fact and fiction podcast that looks at law and order and the true crimes that inspired the show. Exactly. And if you are familiar with Law and Order, you know that most, if not all, the episodes are ripped from some sort of headline. And uh, (laughs) there is, if you are familiar with the show, there is, what is there, 14 seasons? Oh, no, there's like 18. Well, I mean, between, no, I mean, it, it oh, between all the iterations. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Between all the iterations, there's like 40 some odd seasons or something. Yeah. For sure. I mean, just the traditional Law and Order, what it has 20, I think it's got upwards of 20 something seasons. I think you're right. So we've got a lot, a lot to cover. 
so much. Should we tell, should we talk about ourselves? Should we say who we are? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think people should learn how to manage their expectations real early. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to so, go first? Why yeah. Don't, why don't you go why don't, first? Why don't you tell us about yourself and also why you're interested in doing this podcast? I became really interested in true crime as uh, a young, young, young boy. And it was through watching shows like Law and Order that really got me uh, hooked. And I remember my grandmother and grandfather were the main people who watched me when I was really young. And I would just sit there and watch like Perry Mason and Murder, She Wrote and um, Columbo and all these like old shows with them and then i'd expect like i'd be able to go to school and then talk about these things (laughs) nope (laughs) surprise uh so yeah so i just became very interested very young in true crime in general through tv shows like law and order Mm -hmm. and i've just found that throughout my adolescence and into my 20s it could be on in the background and you don't even realize you're absorbing it and then you see the same episode two years later and you can remember like every most of it yeah yeah it's like oh i don't know what episode this is and then like within the first 10 minutes you're like oh i think i know what this episode is but i don't really remember how it ends so i'm just gonna watch it to see how it ends and then usually like right before the end you're like oh i remember how this ends but now i'm invested and i'm gonna watch it yeah and that's how i ended up watching probably most of these episodes so many times over because you've Um, watched the original law and order right Yes, I watched the original Law and Order, not episodically, but um, okay. but like la- in the later seasons, or whatever. I started to watch it more episodically, and then I okay. would watch Law and Order: Criminal Intent when that was on, um, all the way through from beginning to end, I believe, and then SVU, of course, right from beginning to end. I'm still watching SVU. So, are you still talking about yourself? Uh, that's my. That's a, <laughs> that's how I got interested in true crime. I think that's kind of you know what's most relevant about me, and then. Um, yeah, why don't you talk about what me what got you interested in this topic? Yeah, so um, I'm N. Uh, that was Matt that you just heard, and um, I think what one of the reasons I'm excited to do to talk about this and do a podcast about this is I am really interested in crime and criminal justice generally. So I didn't really grow up watching a lot of these kinds of like legal procedural type shows. I like my my parents watched maybe like Boston Legal and and some of those things. So I remember I definitely oh Ally McBeal. I remember watching oh. a lot of Ally McBeal as a child um, or an adolescent, however old I was. So even though I didn't grow up watching a lot of these type of shows, I definitely am really interested in it. I. Uh, So I did my PhD in sociology, and when I was going to grad school, you have to sort of pick an area of focus to study on, or to study, not to study on. (laughs) And I was really torn between a few different options, one of them being studying the criminal justice system. Oh, I don't think I knew that. Yeah. And so I, I, I had known a fair amount about 
um, the criminal justice system and like sociological studies of it, but ended up choosing a different area of research. And so when you and I talked about doing this podcast, it was really exciting to me to kind of come back to talking about crime and, and criminal justice, because I think it's such an interesting area of the world to talk about. Um, and one of the reasons I was so excited to kind of do it through the Law and Order frame is, uh, you know, Law and Order premiered in the 90s. And I I was like, oh boy, when I go back and watch these, I am just like waiting for the racism and the sexism and, and all of the super problematic representations totally. just to like pop up in, like within minutes. And so I'm also really excited to talk about it because I'm, I am aware and like continuing to grow my awareness around how how problematic uh like police and law shows often are in portraying uh certain groups of folks as uh criminals or deviants or you know whatever it might be yeah Um, kind of it, it essentially gives more material for the general populace to like kind of imagine folks as inherently criminal or bad and so i'm really excited to talk about the show because I think crime is so fascinating. I think the criminal justice system is so interesting in how it operates. And I'm also just so excited to talk about it from an additional perspective of like, almost like media literacy, like talking about, okay, what does it mean that we saw this story play out? Like, what is it telling us? So I'm I'm really excited to kind of do that sort of thing as we go through the episodes as well. Because Like I said, 1990, you know, we still have a lot, a lot of problems in 2020, but I'm really excited to kind of revisit the 90s and be like, wow, that like flew back then, but it's super wouldn't today. And, you know, how can we do even better today? So um, that's kind of what drew me to wanting to do this podcast. So I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah, I couldn't couldn't agree more because I've watched... In preparation for doing this, I've rewatched the first like three or four episodes already of the first season, and you're I can that, tell you, you're that student. You did your your advanced homework. Spoiler alert: Episode two is uh, prime oh, time, yeah. ready to start uh, talking about this kind of stuff. So yeah, I read the <laughs> the quick synopsis of it, and I was like, wow, this like this episode could not be more timely for like what's happening in the world right now. So yeah, can't wait to talk about episode two. Yeah, let's let's watch what happens there. But uh, <laughs> I would say, yeah, I'm I'm very excited for a, a lot of the same reasons because once I discovered podcasts. I would say 90% of the podcasts I listen to are true crime uh, adjacent, if not just true crime. And Mm -hmm. so when we were talking about the idea of starting a podcast in in this sort of world, I remember thinking like, oh, you know, I would love to start a podcast where we we did sort of a true crime podcast where we can do research on, on stories. But, you know, something that's always interested me about true crime is the d- depictions of it on TV yeah. and movies and how that sort in in the way you said, like, how does that form sort of our thought patterns um, yes. as we take that sort of content in? And yeah. also, like, I love the, in the same way the 90s were problematic and mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of things that we notice watching the show back now just the leaps and bounds we've made in how tv shows are produced and shot i'm very excited to just like kindly pick apart (laughs) 
the <laughs> endless amount of tropes that we'll see from episode oh. one of season one through the entire series that the we'll entire never... thing yeah yes so i'm yes. really excited to uh you know dig into the the way these were um were shot in yes. even less of a uh <laughs> sociopolitical fashion <laughs> yeah i um i okay so since this premiered in 1990 i just want to take a quick bet with each other. How many episodes will it be before we see somebody wearing a velvet choker? Or, oh, or one of those little crisscrossy chokers, you know, the like, um, yes, the ones that like, expanded out. Yes, yes, yes. Like they looked like they were, um, yeah, the ones that looked sort of like solid, but as you stretched them out to get them around your neck, you realized they were almost like a pattern, like a yeah. thin tribally pattern. <laughs> yes. So, Okay, so my bet, this premiered in 1990, and I feel like that was, like, peak fashion by, like, 96? Maybe a little I think earlier. even a little, I was gonna say, probably, like, more okay. 93, 94. I think we're gonna see a lot of, um, whenever they're depicting a young girl, like a teenager mm-hmm. or a tween, we're gonna see a lot of butterfly clips. Oh, God. Um, like the butterfly clips. The younger they are, the more butterfly clips will be in the head. Um, <laughs> like... I don't think it'll be a Lizzie McGuire level of butterfly clips, but I think it'll be pretty close. It'll be close, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we'll probably in the in the earlier episodes, the young children will have those the plastic ball ones, oh. the ones that look like marbles. Yes. Yeah. We'll yes. definitely see some of those, I think. As a youth, as a young boy, I remember looking at the um girls in class that would have those exact type of hair ties and thinking, mm-hmm. how? Like yeah. how are those gigantic marbles and a string holding that hair together these are the things i can that consumed my mind as a child instead of making friends was um (laughs) how was how does that work how does that hair thing work which maybe should have been my first indication into my queerness (laughs) yeah i mean it could have been a hint a little bit um so here we are starting the first episode yeah so each episode, one of us is going to be uh, talking about the episode of Law and Order, recapping what happens, and uh, both of us have watched the episode, but only one of us has researched the true crime that was ripped from the headlines that inspired the show. So today, Matt will be recapping the episode, and I will be talking about the true crime. So for episode one of season one, I'm going to be taking lead, I guess, on the episode. And the first episode is called Prescription for Death. (laughs) Um, Do we want to make any sort of disclaimer about the episode order confusion? I think we should. Right. So Matt and I, um, when we talked about which episode was first it was kind it was a little confusing because there there is a pilot episode but when it ultimately aired they made that episode i think six so this isn't the pilot episode but it's the first in the um the sequence that in which it aired so this is the first episode that the public saw even though it's not technically the pilot but yes so i say that for any purists out there i don't want you to think we are um not experts on the field, because let me tell you. We are experts. When it comes to watching television, I am 100% an expert on that. Oh, yeah. Maybe we should give just a small disclaimer that we are not uh, like serial level researchers. Well, okay. Which is funny. It was the, the whole time that I was doing the research for the true crime part of this. Right. I was like 
laughing at myself for how just kind of like casual, like Googled things and da 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 da. And I was laughing because uh, like, I was like, well, th- I'm not like a real researcher. And then I was like, well, you did do your PhD. So technically you are a real researcher, right? but, <laughs> uh, but not for this podcast. Well, g- good. Because I was doing my research for next week and um, I think I have all my sources together, but there aren't many. I was thinking, wow, N does like, has done research essentially for a living for a while. Yeah. You know, like, and so I was like, I don't know what this is going to look like in comparison. So that's really good to hear. Because I think yeah. I've heard a lot of podcasts on true crime. I've heard some very amateur ones that are very new mm-hmm. with no research whatsoever, <laughs> with complete opinion. <laughs> and then I've heard things like, you know, serial and more investigative podcasts like The Fall Line and we're definitely not either of the, we're somewhere in the middle I feel like yeah I think but more like, towards like the light research version of the of the middle yeah like we might not necessarily know all of the facts but we are doing our best <laughs> yeah think of this as the kind of podcast that as an average listener you can listen to it and it'll be the kind of content that you want to hear <laughs> <laughs> I want to say that. Great. Think of it as we're just two people experiencing um, true crime and watching Law and Order in the same way you do at home. And now you have the kind of podcast that you wanted to make. You have someone making it for you so you can enjoy it. Perfect. Yeah. All right. So for the first episode, it's again called Prescription for Death. Very dramatic. And the episode's titles only get better as they go on i i read do they ahead yeah the next oh, episode God, is great so prescription for death and you might guess it's gonna have to do with the medical field um if you have because of the because of the prescription part <laughs> yeah and the death part let's be, let's be real yeah. so we open in a busy hospital er um with doctors and nurses and the trope of one very over the pushy people in the intake room. Um, Mm -hmm. She's like a specialist and she's arguing with the patient's father who, like in all these shows, wants answers and only gets, I I can't tell you anything yet. So there's a team of doctors and nurses that we cut to um, desperately trying to revive a young girl in the next room. And a medical assistant says to the doctor, you knew that wasn't right under her breath sort of quietly Ooh, you have to watch for it yeah you got to watch for these like little cues <laughs> and it's just a very uh it's a very 90s scene it's very like er where the camera work is really sort of rapid and erratic and it's supposed to give you that feel that you're in the real world in like a real operating room um yeah. i see a lot of the cuts in this when they cut to a new scene begin with a person walking by really frantically with a, a pad of paper or something looking really busy like almost you, every time they cut to a scene it's someone rapidly walking by the screen have you um have you ever seen that like meme where somebody says you know if you don't feel like working just make sure you around at work walk around really fast with a uh, clipboard or like a steno pad and people will assume you're really busy. So that's that's what they're relying on in, in these episodes. They really are. That was the cue they gave to all the all the extras in the scene. We're like, picture you're at your job and you have to do busy work because your boss is walking by real quick. Yeah. Um. And so, the father of the patient is panicked now and 
we see that the girl goes into cardiac arrest despite the fact that she was just coming in for a sore throat and a prescription. And the doctor who was told, you knew that wasn't right, um, very insensitively shouts to the man, your daughter is dead. Yeah. <laughs> and then we cut to the opening credits. And I just think, you know, I've been to a lot of hospitals and ERs and you got to work on that. That's not really the yeah. best way to tell someone that their teenage daughter is dead. You know, screaming. The bedside manner, the bedside manner could use a little bit of work. A little TLC, a little yeah. bit. Um, but, you know, just like typical Law & Order, you can come to expect an explosive beginning before the opening credits that really color the entire episode. Mm. Um, and twists and turns abound, as usual. So we come back, and we're at the 36th, 36th precinct, and the patient's father is filing a murder complaint, which is completely puzzling. Um, Sergeant Max Grevy and Detective Mike Logan they're very skeptical because, you know, the man is here filing a murder complaint against a doctor who is treating his daughter. I have a question. Can you yeah. file a murder complaint? I mean, that's what he was doing, but I, I don't know. I guess he can file a... He can make an accusation. I don't know. I guess I don't understand quite how you would go to a police station and make an appointment to open a murder case. Like, that seems like something right. that is initiated by the police maybe he was like pushy enough to be like she shouldn't have died da, 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 da. yeah i mean that's definitely a strong possibility but the man he who by the way has the thickest like new york new jersey accent i've ever heard he um <laughs> he calls them antibiotics antibiotics oh um which by the way i'm you know from the east coast no one i've never heard a single person say that in my entire <laughs> life but maybe antibiotics. It was, maybe it was a 90s pronunciation. I think it's the really heavy-handed. <laughs> they really okay. wanted to let you know that this is set in New York City. Is so, it? You know what's funny is I did not. I did oh, not get come. that. I, can't. I didn't get it. So anyway, <laughs> so uh, he tells them that he was a medic in Vietnam, and so he knows what sick people are supposed to look like. And I know that for me, this isn't like a directly related thing um but this is how he knows something is off and it's enough for them to take the case to the captain who's donald cragen so captain cragen says people die in hospital emergency rooms every hour of every day and he wonders do they have any sort of proof of malpractice and then they they bring in this very compelling piece of evidence one of them says he was very convincing <laughs> yeah and so they're off. That, that's all they needed. So I don't know. So they're can at... We, wait, yeah. can, we, um, can we sidetrack for a minute? Yeah. So the two detectives, one of them is Chris Noth. Yes. Noth? Is that how you say his name? Yes. Noth. Chris um, Noth and um, George Zunda? Zunda or DeZunda is the other one. Uh, he's the like kind of slightly larger man. Yeah, Max Grevy, okay. Sergeant Max Grevy is played by um, George Zunda. And if I remember correctly, we see him through many of the seasons. Um, Detective Mike Logan is played by Chris Noth. And I believe that's how you say it. That's how I've, I've always said it. Um, we see Chris Noth through many seasons of Law and & Order. And he also is in Law & Order Criminal Intent later on as a primary um, detective. And then Captain Donald Cragen... Um, he is always in the Law and Order world, and up until 
only like five seasons or so ago, four seasons ago, he was still on Law and Order SVU. So he's he's going to stay around for a really long time. Be- so I knew, I know Chris Noth from Sex and the City. Oh, and was he Mr. Big? He was Mr. Big on Sex and the City. I never even watched that show, but I know that's who he was. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's funny because... In Sex and the City, he was supposed to be, like, really sexy and alluring to Carrie and all that. And I never really got it. And it's only it only premiered eight years later. But seeing him at the beginning of this Law & Order episode, I was like, okay, he's got he's kind of got a little bit of, of sexiness about him. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a looker. He's a, he's a tall glass of water. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I'm 100. So, we've got... Uh, Sergeant Grevy and Detective Logan at the at the medical center the next day at Urban Medical Center, and they are going to start questioning the staff and figuring out what's going on because, as they said, the father was convincing, and so mm-hmm. they are talking to an intern who he was the one who admitted the patient Susan Suzanne Morton, who is the deceased. So yes. Suzanne Morton was admitted by him, and he remembers her dramatizing her symptoms of quote-unquote bronchitis and ordering he ordered a trex x-ray for her and then got her started to get set up in a waiting room he's shocked to hear she died since you don't die from bronchitis um the medical the the doctor in the next scene is too busy to even make eye contact or stop moving she knows a little bit more than the intern does she says Mm -hmm. that Suzanne had pneumonia, um, which was complicated by chemical pneumitis, and she must have aspirated her stomach contents. Mm -hmm. And they both comment on her suspicious demeanor, because which I'm glad, because as soon as she walked away, I I paused and I started writing that sentence about how she didn't make eye contact. And as soon as Mm -hmm. I unpaused, they were like, well, she was too busy to make eye contact, Um, which means I thought I was really super sleuth. Yeah. Um, and You're so, a regular Harriet the Spy. Exactly, but not at all. You know, I didn't have Rosie to help me. So, so they're questioning Dr. Raza, who we remember Raza. earlier was the one shouting about uh, the dead girl, the dead daughter. Yeah. And he says the girl was sicker than she should have been, and that she should have been in the ICU, um, but there were no beds available, and it was a real shame. But he makes a strange comment about how in his country they accept death. But here, we're expected to live forever. I think, you know, he should probably work on his timing also here. Because we already know he has no bad side manner for screaming your daughter's dead. And now he's being questioned by police officers on a mysterious death. And he's saying, you know... He was basically like, shit happens. Move on. Right. Get over it. What's the big deal? Yeah. So they move on to a resident who is clearly, like, really on fire for his job still. He's... um, Excited by what he does, he asks Detective Grevy if he's ever held a human heart in his own hands. If someone asked me that question, I don't care if they were a doctor or not, if I've ever held a human hand, a human heart in my hand, I would be so far out of that room instantaneously. Oh like, yeah. I don't care where we are. No, I've not no. held a human heart. You would just see like a cloud of smoke in the room and right. I'd just be gone. Because your options for that are you're a serial killer or a, like a, a a person who digs up bodies or you are a person who performs autopsies. Like those are the three, or you're actually a doctor, a surgeon. Those are like the three options for holding a human heart in your hands. There's not a lot of them. There really isn't. And no, and, and what, what was, let's say they were like, yeah, what's the, what's the next thing? Cool. 
cool, too. right? <laughs> yeah. Feels like jello. I don't know. Bloody, huh? So um, once the detective and sergeant are alone, they sort of discuss the details they have so far. And Logan calls out Grievy on his attitude because he's starting to get sarcastic and so yes. he explains that about eight years ago he was at a crime scene where a suspect's girlfriend had jumped him and he hit his head um thinking little to nothing of it but when he went to the doctor he was told he had an inoperable d- brain tumor in his cerebellum and so he gets a second opinion and he's told instead that he just has a subdural hematoma and he's fine and so while it all worked out when it doesn't, according to Grievy, they just bury him. And so now we get a little bit of uh, con- context to why the Detective Grievy is acting this way. Um, Although, okay, so in this scene, he says the line, I just want doctors held to the same standards as cops. And I actually screamed oh. out loud when i heard that line right like it was right you know like i was expecting so much 90s nonsense or like really really politically unaware nonsense from this show because it was 30 some odd years ago but the idea that cops are held to higher standards than doctors really made me laugh it's it's very pot and kettle mm, very much yeah very pot and kettle you know yeah so they have this very you know Telling scene, it's something you see in Law and Order a lot. So now they're going to go and question Dr. Oster, who is the chief of medicine. So he's the big boss, um, and he instantly turns them off with very, very, very cavalier attitude and does the same to the audience, I'm sure. And he's got this very holier-than-thou sort of God-complex attitude that everyone um, alludes to throughout the, the episode. And the best they get out of him is that diagnoses are like a lottery. Great thing you want to hear from a healthcare provider. A hundred percent. Yep. Yeah. It, so that really engenders a lot of confidence in my my well being. Oh yeah, I really want to go to a hospital um, where someone, a teenager, just died. No one cares, and the only explanation is that it's it's basically like a lottery. So yeah, you win some, you lose some. And <laughs> right. I'm sorry. Do you know a lot? And is it a science or is it a lottery or is it a scratch off? <laughs> right. It, yeah. Is it- <laughs> Yeah. Is are it a you, scratch and sniff or, or a scratch and sniff? Is it a lottery scratcher and underneath are skull and crossbones? New idea. Scratch off tickets that are also scratch and sniff. Copywritten. Do not steal it. You can you can vote on what scent the scent would be for our first scratch and sniff scratch off. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> so back at the station after this meeting, they examine the medical records and they're sort of pouring over everything and they notice whiteout on um on the forms for Suzanne the patient who just passed away. And so a colleague that. in the room points out that this is not a letter to Dear Abby and <laughs> there should not be white out on there. And I just thought it could have been a better zinger than a letter to Dear Abby. I, I mean, it was probably super topical at the time. I guess, but who puts what, you know, I don't know. Well, I don't, I mean, does white out even exist anymore? Who, who still uses it? There's white out in my office. It's probably just flakes, you know, like when you open an old whiteout oh and God. it's just like dust comes out. That's yes. probably what's in there now. Oh, that's the worst. If you can even get the stick out because it's dry- dried in there. Yes. And so uh, they realize, you know, this whiteout is a sure sign that this is not this wasn't handled correctly. So she had originally been prescribed a narcotic when they see below the whiteout. And then it was changed into Asimetaphine by Dr. Ekbal Raza. So, 
They speak to her primary care provision, primary care physician, and he says that she was on a strong antidepressant prescribed to her by her psychiatrist since her mother's death last year when she started to become depressed. And they get the tox screen back, um, and they don't see the antidepressant or the narcotic in her system, which is very strange because they are sure they're at least going to see the antidepressant if that's what she was on. And so they ask the um, gentleman for a separate tox screen to be performed that would have a, a wider variety of medications come up. The man from Morg says it's a waste of time, as no one would take this combo unless they wanted to die. Um, <laughs> but, you know, she's dead um, since bum, bum, bum. she's in the morgue. So I don't see how that's a waste of time. He should say, I absolutely yep. will check that. So they go and they question Dr. Raza again. He swears it was a clerical error only, um, that the whiteout just happened in a rush and that it's not indicative of any sort of narcotic actually being administered. It was a total mistake. Um, they tell Dr. Raza that this is a felony, and he explains the plight he encounters daily as an Indian physician, and that he has to work twice as hard in his field in his hospital to even be viewed as working just as hard as anyone else. So they don't really seem moved too much by his plea, um, and... Grievy, I think, says before he walks out, you know, you'll be lucky if your if your harshest punishment is deportation. Yikes! The whole way that they handle him and like the deportation like joke or whatever that is, mm-hmm. I was like, well, here we go, here we are, right? And it just shows not much has changed. And I really didn't like, I didn't like that because <laughs> there's so many reasons I didn't like that, oh, but yeah. I didn't like it because so much of the episode really focuses on him having like made these mistakes and and they really tie that to his status as an immigrant and it just felt like this really like xenophobic storyline of like well this you know international doctor made these mistakes and this like young white girl died and i just i hated that yeah i mean i i i agree i have a i have some thoughts on that too but i'm just gonna wait until i get to the conclusion Okay. Because they include spoilers. So after they make that remark to him and leave, they check all of his, they check all of the previous medical records with his name signed on them, um, wherever he's redacted any sort of errors before. And they see that he usually redacts his errors correctly, crosses them out, and then initials them. And they wonder if the fact that these particular rounds on this patient were performed three hours later than all of the other ones he usually has redactions on and they're noticing a trend like why is this why were these rounds performed so drastically later and i wonder if that has something to do with it so they go back to speak to the chief of medicine again and he sort of cavalierly says that they're looking way too deep into this and basically inventing nonsense when it's just a simple fluke and he trusts dr raza so much that he hired him and sent a letter to immigration that morning for him which is very suspicious timing These people are not slick at all. Now, once again, they've deduced that if they want any real information, they better stop asking this, like, boys club of doctors. It seems to be thematic. And Mm -hmm. so they discuss um, the timing of the rounds with a female nurse now. And she pulls no punches right away. And she's like, they waited that long because Dr. Oster, the chief of medicine, is often hungover and probably, probably drunk because he smelled like liquor when he showed up three hours late to the rounds. 
Now, there was a retirement party for an anesthesiologist that this do- that Dr. Oster had attended, and everybody knew he was in attendance there. And so they go and question the rich white man on the top of a roof, and he is very fancily dressed looking out of a telescope in broad daylight. The life of an anesthesiologist has been good to him, he says. Yeah. <laughs> and so he says he's... Um, he had a great time at the party. Dr. Oster was there and he hired a catering company for the bar with a bar for the event. And he knows that, um, he knows the name of the caterer. So they go and check with the caterer and the bartender who says that Dr. Oster had a bourbon on the rocks every five minutes at this event. That's a lot. It is a lot. I mean, I like whiskey, a bourbon on the rocks every five minutes. Even if it was like a literally shot, a single like, shot still, because what is I'm bad at math, but how many would that be in an hour? Oh, uh, every five minutes, at least what ten or twelve? Oh yeah, twelve. Good job. Thank you. Twelve <laughs> shots in one hour is a fuck ton of whiskey. Oh my god. So yeah, yeah so a bourbon on the rocks every five minutes for anybody and is not great. Not and for did healthcare his doctor doctor stuff. Right, a chief of medicine, not even just a new doctor on the block, not an intern, not a resident, chief of medicine. So now we're treated to the moment in many Law & Order episodes where several members of the team have polarizing opinions based on their own personal experiences on some mm-hmm. sort of like hot-button topic, and they hash it out in a, um out-loud battle complete with like rolling eyes uh finger pointings usually lots of sighing and head shakes and side eye and we got our first one in first episode which is exciting yeah so we learned that logan's father had a heart transplant and so he's all about hospitals in opposition to grievy who has shown himself to be a little biased and yes. Grievy admits that the percentage of bad doctors is small in comparison to good doctors but again they should be held to the same standards as police officers when mm-hmm. somebody gets shot um and i i wrote he probably should have specified when somebody white is shot 100%. but i digress so now logan's playing devil's advocate and says you know what if he's off duty having a couple of pops which i think means beer but i i'd never heard someone call alcohol pops I had any, I would assume that meant soda. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're trying again this New York East Coast lingo. I I don't know. It's <laughs> not like anything I've ever heard. Pops. No. So he was let's just assume drinks. So he's having a couple of drinks and you know right outside he notices a, a crime going down, uh, a mugging. And so even though he's off duty, if he runs out and yells halt police and the mugger reaches into his pocket and turns around. If he shoots the mugger and it was only a wallet um, and they smell liquor on his breath, like he's done for. Um, And so how should this be different? And so I would venture to say he should be (laughs) in big trouble if he does that. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Like, so his example of like, what if this happened? See, I would say you should absolutely. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Hello. So I don't, <laughs> but you know, t- to go on. So no one has claimed that the doctor was acting drunk. They only smelled the liquor on him. So Captain Cragen 
now talks about his own battle with alcoholism um, for the first time. You see it throughout, though. And so he says that before he got sober, he remembers an incident where he wasn't noticeably drunk to anybody, but he blacked out and woke up holding a gun on a cab driver because he didn't like his tone, which gives Logan <laughs> some... Jesus Christ, yeah, I right? missed that. Oh, yeah. He, he was holding a gun on a cab driver when he came to um, because he didn't like the way the guy talked to him. And so he oh says, God. listen, you can look drunk or not but it doesn't matter if you're drinking and it gives logan some perspective before they're sent back out to the hospital put more pressure on the staff now i have a question about policing in general Uh are police allowed to keep their guns when they're not on duty like it just seems like the kind of thing that you should a i don't believe in in arming police officers period but it seems like at a minimum it should be like i show up for work and they hand me my gun I leave for the day, I turn my gun back in. Like, I think that sounds great, but I don't think that's the way it <laughs> that's is. That's not how it works? That's the not only, the rule? But okay. I will say the only context I have for this, and again, we are not, we are just ordinary people. We do not work in uh, law or order. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I will say that my only ex- like um, expertise on this is watching a lot of TV shows where when a police officer is... Um, discharged yeah they have to hand in their gun and badge yes and they're usually not on duty when they do so and so i'm assuming they off-duty cops just have to have them locked up or yeah you know i don't know if you know out there please feel free to to write us. us or tweet us and let us know because i'm i'm curious so they um they speak to the man who was really excited earlier about holding the human heart and he is too too afraid to speak out and have his career ruined. Um, and so they apply some good old-fashioned guilt on him and a little mild threat. And they soon have him confessing that Dr. Oster was drunk and that he administered the narcotic despite there being talk out loud in the room that he overheard that she was on an antidepressant. And no one did anything about it because they didn't want to go against the chief of medicine with as much power as he has because... Their careers are in his hands. Much like a human heart. Much like a human heart. Now the part of the episode where we're going to go and meet the courtroom people are, the courtroom presence. So we've seen the cops, and now we're going to see the courtroom. So reporting to the DA is EADA Ben Stone, who's played by Michael Moriarty, who we see throughout Law & Order for a while. Um, I don't remember how long we see the DA in in charge but i know he's in law and order world for a long time and then um richard brooks plays ada paul robinette who is in law and order for at least a few seasons so it's good to get familiar with these characters so in charge is da schiff reporting to him is eada stone and reporting to him is ada robinette and we see robinette and stone work in conjunction a lot now we have the case being taken to um, Stone and Robinette, and the current evidence isn't enough, but Robinette feels that with the resident's testimony and the bartender's corroboration, that they're hoping that more staff will, more hospital staff will come forward. And so Stone agrees and issues a warrant for Dr. Oster's arrest, which they can carry out as he is, which they then carry out as he's having a tender moment with an elderly patient. Oh my God, <laughs> Yes. Boo-hoo. 
Where um, he's like, your heart's all better, ma'am. And, sh- and there's like no medical equipment in the room whatsoever. No. It's just like, it, it's it's like they walked him into the set of Golden Girls. And 100%. he just sat down and was like, it's going to be okay. Yeah, he sat down and they were like, Miami, Miami. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't, it made no, she's not even in bed, I think. She's just like sitting up in bed. It's just so unrealistic. Oh, right. She, supposedly she had just had surgery, but she's like fully sitting up. Yeah, in like a in like a, a hospital gown with her hair done. Yeah. Not a sweat droplet. And she's no. he's like, you're just no. fine, ma'am, as they go and grab him. <laughs> yep. And so the next scene we have um, Stone and Robinette being accosted at lunch by the doctor's attorney, Philip Nevins who is played by Ron Rifkin. Um, and you might remember him from Alias. You watch Alias, right? I never. I saw like a couple episodes. Uh, he was an alias. And um, he was also, what I remember mostly from was Brothers Brothers and Sisters, which was a show I was obsessed wait, with. Wait, wait, wait. I love Brothers and Sisters. Oh, he's Uncle Saul. Oh my God, yes. Okay, thank you. I knew yes. I knew him, but I couldn't oh, nice. place him. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He so was also love, on one I episode of Sex in the City. Yeah. He is? Yeah. I just have to say it about him in in brothers and sisters his character in that show is always drinking a glass of wine Uh and he holds the glass of wine between his thumb and his index finger on the base of the glass so he is not the stem not around the you know bowl of the glass on the base and you know in theory i think that's uh supposed to minimize heat transfer to the wine but it always freaks me out because it looks so precarious like he's going to throw that wine on the floor at any moment i literally have my hand in the position i think it would be in to hold a, a glass of wine like that and i am doing nervous. it over my laptop and i'm nervous i'm going to spill the imaginary wine on my laptop <laughs> yeah 100% <laughs> now they bring the female doctor um, that we spoke to, that we've seen earlier up and she testifies and mentions that she's Harvard educated. And as soon as she mentions that there's no cross-examination of the white female doctor. Nope. We have Dr. Oster being put on stand next. It's a very risky move as we all probably know in the true crime world to put the defendant like on the stand, but yeah. they take the risky move. They put Oster on the stand, and the courtroom listens as he recounts his illustrious life-saving career, including treating over 300 medical professionals and their families over the last 10 years. And so after this whole thing, the judge motions for lunch before the cross-examination, and Stone and Grevy observe the doctor, te- or Dr. Oster telling, um, talking to some people, and they notice some telling signs from him before he exits the courtroom. Due to their keen eye, Grevy whispers something to Stone. We'll learn later in cross-examination what that was. So they go to lunch, they come back, and we have Oster back on the stand. Stone is asking him if he—he's asking about the lunch they just had. And he asks if he had a drink that day. And he cautiously admits that he had, but he can't remember how many. And Stone is asking him, like, was it this many? Was it that many? He can't remember. He's getting agitated. And Stone asks if it was perhaps six bourbons in less than 45, less than 45 minutes ago. And the defendant says he doesn't think so. He doesn't remember. So he orders for the defendant to take a, in front of the courtroom, a vehicular sobriety test. And the judge allows it. He fails immediately um despite appearing very sober and can't touch his nose he's like smacks his head (laughs) 
<laughs> my note to myself says he pokes his eyes and then makes a face like he had seen the face of God. Like it was just so poorly acted. It really was. It was unbelievable. And I think he's. The, I feel like I've seen this doc, this actor before. I didn't look it up, but I feel like he is not. He is kind of an accomplished actor. But yeah, exactly. He like pokes himself in the eye with his meaty fingers Did- and like slaps his his cheekbone. And yeah, he makes a face like he saw God. He does. Did you ever see um, Bridesmaids with uh, Kristen Wiig? Yeah. You know that scene where she and, um, fuck, I'm forgetting her name. Maya Rudolph? Her best friend in the movie. Maya Rudolph. Rudolph. Yeah, thank you. When they're at the bakery and they're making jokes about like uh, pretending their arm is like John Hamm's penis and they're kind of like <gasps> shoving it against her face. That's exactly <laughs> what he does with his hand. My God, I never would have remembered that scene in a million years. But I'm, so, I'm so glad I do. It's it's not un, it's not unlike what you're describing. He smacks himself yeah. on the head very softly and then is shocked that he that he he comes to the conclusion himself um, right there that it's a problem. After this happens, the next scene we see is the trial basically being over. I don't think that's the way court it this happens. I think there's nope. like judgment later and sentencing and this whole but in this world the trial's over we assume the guy's guilty and then we're outside of the courtroom now and um grievy is congratulating stone and saying how did you know like what gave you the tip off that something was going to happen and he says he knew something was going to happen on lunch because of his experience with his own father who drank every single day at lunch and then that has us closing out the episode in classic Law & Order fashion, giving the audience something to chew on. Matt, are you ready to hear the true crime on which this case is based? I'm so ready because I, I didn't even look. I didn't even venture to look, and I don't have any guesses. So I'm okay, really great. curious. So... Um, as you can imagine, you know, incidents in this case were dramatized for the show. This episode was based on the death of Libby Zion. Oh, I don't think so, I've ever heard of this. My sources for this are, um, uh, were the Penn State Law Review, a website called OpMed, Wikipedia, and Emergency Medicine News, um, as well as just some other kind of random sites, but, uh, to con- kind of confirm stuff, but... Uh, Those were my main sources for getting this information. So this case was referred to as one of the most influential in all of medical uh, medical education because it had a really big impact on emergency care and attending supervision, like how much um, time doctors were allowed to work, how, uh, how much supervision there were for interns and all that kind of stuff. So Libby Zion was a freshman at Bennington College in Vermont, and she was the daughter of Sidney Zion, who was a lawyer, author, and journalist. He um, actually wrote for the New York Times for a while, and uh, one of the articles that I read described their family as one of means and influence. Mm. So, (laughs) must be nice, right? So, on (laughs) March 4th, 1984, Libby entered the emergency room, and as her obituary would later state, she had been ill with a flu-like ailment for several days, um, and she presented with a fever, but her diagnosis was not clear upon admission. The ER doctors, once they admitted her, they consulted with her family physician to um, kind of talk about how to treat her, and he 
uh, agreed, her her uh, family physician agreed with the ER doctors on their plan to just give her hydration and observe her. And she was um, assigned to two residents, Louise Weinstein or Weinstein um, and Greg Stone, uh, both of which who evaluated her. So I think uh, Louise Weinstein was supposed to be uh, like the the doctor who wouldn't make eye contact yeah, in the episode. That sounds and Greg right. Stone, I don't know, Greg Stone was one of the other ones. Uh, Louise Weinstein was a first-year resident physician, and Stone was a second-year resident. So they were uh, newer doctors, right? And here's where the story gets a little bit unclear. Uh, one of the articles that I found said that Libby started um, to act or to become agitated and another one said that she was exhibiting exhibiting quote strange jerking motions hmm. um another one said she had a strange pattern of on again off again agitated behavior they both uh, you know the er doctors examined her when she was admitted and they they followed the advice to hydrate and they prescribed her Meperidine, which is a medicine that they talk about in the episode of Law and Order. Yes, I was too afraid that, to pronounce it too many times. <laughs> they, um, that's the I don't know medical name or or uh, pharmaceutical name for Demerol. I just kept referring it to as narcotic because I didn't want to say it. Gotcha. <laughs> so they uh, prescribed uh, Demerol to control her quote strange jerking motions that she had exhibited when she was admitted. And after they evaluated her and, and administered that med- medication, uh, Dr. Weinstein went to cover other patients and Dr. Stone went to sleep in an on-call room in an adjacent building, which I'm sorry, like there should not, I don't think there should be a job that is so demanding that you have, you can't go home to sleep. <laughs> I mean, I guess unless well, you're traveling, but like the idea that I you're... I would say... Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say like in um, Grey's Anatomy, I feel like I've only watched a couple of episodes because I fucking hate that show. But uh, <laughs> like in, in one of the first episodes, they're all like sleeping on cots in a room, you know, kind of close to the hospital or whatever, or in the hospital somewhere. I don't think that's healthy. And I don't think it sets doctors up to like make good decisions and all of that kind of stuff. I don't think so either, but... Because of the demand on healthcare professionals, I think it's necessary to have. Yeah. But yeah. I think that I, I agree. Like, I don't think that's how our system should work. Right. I know like a lot of our facilities have a, the doctor requests a room to be available for them. Sometimes the doctors and surgeons will work out of multiple facilities. So they'll be at the hospital for like f- six hours in the morning. Then they got to be at a, a different facility that's further away from their office for like the latter half of their day. And so a lot of these like rooms serve as a, a resting place because yeah. their home is so far out of the way on their commute. But I don't think that's the, the way they're being used most of the time. I think it's more like the constant overwork of like staff. Yeah. And then they have to use the room because they're not getting any time off. Yeah. So Weinstein went to cover other patients. Stone went to sleep in an on-call room. And Libby was just kind of, you know, left for observation. But she didn't improve, unfortunately. And she started to become even more agitated. The nurses on duty called Dr. Weinstein, Weinstein, I'm probably going to go back and forth, uh, who did not, I think it's Weinstein. Anyway. I I don't know. I feel like they both sound good, so. Okay. Um, (laughs) The nurses called Dr. Weinstein, who did not check on her, but ordered medical restraints to be placed on Libby, and also prescribed 
this when I was writing my notes for this, I was thinking to myself, I don't know how to say this. I'm not a doctor. And I was like, well, I'm a doctor. I'm just not the useful kind. Uh, so <laughs> they they prescribed haloperidol. Mm. Um, I'm sure that's not right. And it is an antipsychotic that oh, they prescribe to control her agitation. So that's now two medications that she's been that have been administered to her to control her agitation and her behavior, but they still haven't really done anything to address her initial uh, the, symptoms. The symptom, right. The symptoms she showed up to the emergency room with. Oh my God. So they administer that antipsychotic and Libby falls asleep. Um, but by like something around like five or six o'clock that morning, her brain, her fever climbs to 107 degrees. And I'm I'm taking this information from a uh, schoolmate from middle from elementary school. But isn't there a a a uh, temperature at which like your brain starts to become damaged by a fever? Like it actually sort of essentially kind of like cooks your brain, and your brain is is uh, getting damaged from how high your fever is. I Tell me, Doctor Matt. I don't know. I've never. I've heard of like. You, <laughs> you mean like irreparable yeah oh like i don't know about that damages. i've never heard of that before i, I thought okay maybe it sounds I'm a little it I, creepypasta it could i mean like i said i'm literally it's one of those things that like somebody told me in elementary school and i was like oh yeah and now i believe it to be true so it yeah. could be entirely wrong hmm. if you're a doctor and you're listening to this please feel free to tell us yeah i'd say i'd look it up but i'm not going to i'll forget okay. <laughs> yeah so <laughs> The nurses find her fever is at 107 degrees, and so they call Dr. Weinstein again. And Dr. Weinstein gives them some directions, and they try to take those measures to reduce her temperature. But before they could do anything, Libby's ion died of cardiac arrest and could not be resuscitated. How old was she again? 18. Oh, my God. So Libby Zion's parents, rightfully so, are like, hold up. She went into the ER with the flu, and she's dead. Like, something went really, really wrong here. So they become convinced that her death was due to inadequate staffing at the hospital. Mm -hmm. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Okay. But, But first, here's a little bit more about Libby. And again, these are from articles I found. I tried to find her obituary. I tried to find things that were, like, written by her family and her friends so that I could try to get... Um, information from from them but yeah. I, I couldn't find a whole lot again this was a case in 1984 so it's a little older wasn't super easy to find a lot of info on yeah or or not it was easy to find a lot of information on it wasn't easy to find a lot of information from certain people yeah so i don't love a lot of the articles that are written about her because i think that they paint her in a really uncharitable light Right, because so far, what we know about her story is is really this tragedy of she went to the ER, things went wrong, and she died. Which is all that should matter. Uh, right, yeah. So, but. but a lot of the articles written about her refer to her using words like troubled young lady. Mm-hmm. Of course. And you might ask yourself, what evidence do they have to describe her as such? Well, let me tell you. I can't would be my wait. answer. So supposedly, by testimony of those who knew her well, Libby had, and this is a direct quote, intense, brief, consistently unhappy romantic relationships, 
parenthetical my 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 addition who hasn't she's 18 Amen. how many people don't have brief consistently unhappy romantic relationships before 18 that's the entire premise of teen dating yeah if you're lucky <laughs> if, if you're, you're lucky. lucky you have that right <laughs> anyway um but they also say she used illegal substances chronically and was known for <laughs> quote doctor shopping which i couldn't find a lot of elaboration on that but it it sounds like they were implying that she always mm, like moves around to different doctors, maybe to get different prescriptions or things like that right. was sort of the implication behind that. Yeah. Again, that's totally the I, implication. Yeah. I don't, none of, mm, I just want to be clear. I'm not stating fact here. Yeah. Um, but you know what? It's good that you found that because this is probably, this is all you can find today. I yeah. would venture I'm going to just take a wild guess that this is exactly how it was reported um, yes. at the time. So even when there was yeah. more coverage and more things, I would venture to say that most of the reporting uh, used similar language. And it, I'm sure it colored the uh, the public view on, on the quote-unquote victim. Oh, totally. Yeah. A lot of what I found were articles. Like, I found articles that sort of, like, summarized the the event like now contemporarily looking back on it but some of this was directly articles from the 80s that talked about it when it was kind of current mm -hmm. um so others in libby's life described her as unhappy saying that she had depressions i don't know what this means but physical miseries which literally sounds like daily life to me yeah um <laughs> Stolen we stolen weekends and troubled love affairs, and most striking, the use of drugs, an appalling list of both prescription and illicit drugs, including cocaine, that Libby largely hid from the hospital doctors. Again, those are some direct quotes from articles written in the 80s. Um, so in where the 80s, an 18-year-old girl dies, and yes. the reaction of reporters... Maybe not of their own choice, of course, but the reaction of the media is to report largely on the young victim's quote-unquote troubled past yep. rather than the tragic loss of an 18-year-old life. So it sounds Correct. like the reporting was saying, yes, it's tragic, but at least it was, you know, this kind of person. Yep. Not a huge loss. You know, sad, right. sure, but not that right. sad. Don't feel too For bad sure. about it, world. Exactly. Um, so a little bit more detail about her is that in her autopsy, they did find a trace amount of cocaine. Even though the autopsy literally refers to a trace amount, several of the articles that I found referred to her as having overdosed on cocaine. But that's, <laughs> by, all, by everything I can find, absolutely not what happened. You're right. What we do know, though, is that Libby did take a daily antidepressant called phenylzine um mm -hmm. again antidepressants are great things for lots of us so i think that she was doing what she needed to um yeah and continuing from my article of the journalist who i think is a dick that wrote that libby was not forthcoming about her cocaine usage to the doctors nor about her many potentially catastrophically interacting medications oh okay and they say that by all accounts uh, she failed to present her own story reasonably or coherently, and uh, the working diagnosis was an un not unreasonably an unknown infection. So I, I hate this journalist because 
Um, they they basically are placing all of the responsibility for this on Libby. Um, this article was paid for by the hospital. <laughs> uh, right. So that's what that I mean, sounds she like came to me. In, like I, it doesn't seem fair to. It's very unfair to me because I think you know she came into the ER of her own accord, presented her symptoms to the doctors fully coherently, and this journalist is essentially implying that she died because she wasn't honest. Right, and it's and also anyone who is using cocaine, who among them is going to be quote-unquote forthcoming in 1984 as an 18-year-old at the hospital. Right, and it's so ironic because everybody was on cocaine in the 80s. Yes. Like, so anyway. Um, But that's what really drives me up a wall about medicine in general is I feel like often, like we are expected as patients to go to doctors or go to the hospital and and deduce what information will assist the doctor in diagnosing and treating us. But then when we like give information, they're like, it's sort of like, well, you're not a doctor. You don't know. Like, it's just this like competing thing of how we should be interacting with doctors that really frustrates me because I think it creates a lot of scenarios like this where we, you know, revere some people for having some knowledge but then if a doctor's like why didn't you tell me that it's like well i'm not the doctor like that's not my responsibility to know the things that that will have an impact on things like i don't know medical interactions yeah it is your job it is your responsibility to ask the correct questions it is not my responsibility to be a mind reader and know what you're supposed to know and on on top of that this is the only country that I, i correct me if i'm wrong but i believe we are the only country that expects ailing people to educate themselves about possible medications they should be taking and then ask their doctor about it it's so strange and when you look at like buzzfeed articles of uh people saying like these are the weird things about america that i never like realized were super weird until i went to visit one of those things is like commercials for drugs like that doesn't happen in so many other countries like that's really really weird to people so According to some of the articles that I found, some of the substances that were in her body that night, this is a long list, so brace yourself. Okay. Also, I'm I'm going to mispronounce some of these. I was going to say, I'm bracing myself for (laughs) words I will never be able to say back. (laughs) Right. Okay. So I just want to read them because it's like kind of shocking how many things. And this is from the talk screen? No, Uh, this is from some of the articles I found. Oh, this is from the articles. Okay, got it. Yeah, so it's possible that this is not accurate okay tagamet motrin actifed two anxiolytics dalmane and valium the antidepressant nardil the antibiotics tetracycline doxycycline and erythromycin the sedating antihistamine chlorophenyramine sure (laughs) and the opioid pain reliever percodan these drugs in her system so maybe this is from the talk screen. If it's not, I apologize. This could be entirely from a, just the news article. So this is 11 they, drugs listed in that one article from this guy. Uh, no, or I think among this, all this the articles you've read. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. But they did say that these were prescribed by at least seven different specialists in different locations, none of whom were in communication with the others. Of course not. 
all of those medic like just thinking i'm like trying to count how many medications i have in my system on a daily basis but it probably isn't far less than that but it turns out that one of the combinations was a lethal reaction between two medicines which was her daily antidepressant and the demerol that she was prescribed in the emergency room so that's actually what killed her yeah but that was a interaction that nobody knew about at the time and i think part of that is just one of those drugs might have been newer and so they just didn't know how it interacted with the other one okay and something to remember is this is 1984 so this all happened before we even had computerized pharmacy systems so like the doctors one of the one of the articles that i read was written by a doctor and they were saying in 1984 at this time, doctors had to just memorize <gasps> drug interactions. Like they just had to know in their head which drugs had bad interactions with other drugs. Um, I can't even remember a five ingredient <laughs> recipe that right. I make every day. Are you kidding me? No. I don't even remember what time my favorite show is on sometimes. <laughs> memorize yeah. drugs that I can't even pronounce. In med school, I will say, when I'm learning a zillion different... Oh, my God. I will say, possi- like, for sure, in 1984, there was far fewer drugs than there are today. I'm right? sure, so, like, but I'm sure there was a lot them, of experimental yes. drugs. Oh, I'm sure. Tons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Libby's father pushed for a criminal case. He basically tried to... He tried to make the case publicly. Again, he was a, a journalist for The Times. Um, began to publicly refer to Libby's death as a murder Mm. and blamed the attending physicians for not knowing about that drug interaction and also, like, highlighted their working conditions that facilitated them making mistakes, right? Like, if you're tired, you're working 36 hours in a row, uh, whatever it is, you're Mm. more likely to make mistakes. So they said that and the fact that they didn't know about that interaction interaction between the drugs that she was um, prescribed— essentially equated to murder Hmm. not unlike a lot of the things we saw in the uh in the episode about the working conditions and them being exhausted you know yes although you know they had to dramatize it with alcoholism as well which is nowhere present in this story which doesn't mean it didn't also happen but it's not not the main cause of this like they they made it in the episode there's the fiction Yeah, there's the fiction. So the argument made by Mr. Zion was that if there had been an attending physician in the hospital, these younger doctors would have been more supervised or better rested and his daughter would still be alive. So one of the headlines that I found was meet Libby Zion, victim of a tired hospital resident. So the news is definitely like portraying this as Libby is a victim and like this is a result of a hospital resident being overworked, which... I have known some doctors, and I do know that they are super overworked. Their hours are ridiculous. Yeah. So it's not outside the realm of possibility. No, not at all. Um, in, his, in his editorial to the New York Times, uh, Libby's dad, um, I forget his first name, Mr. Zion, I'll go with, said, <laughs> this is a, a quote from his writing, you don't need kindergarten to know that a resident working a 36-hour shift is in no condition to make any kind of judgment call. Forget about life and death. He also stated, they gave her a drug that was destined to kill her, then ignored her except to tie her down like a dog. <sighs> Which is so heartbreaking to imagine a father having to write those words. I know. And she was. She was strapped. 
She was. Yep. Um, so he was pushing for those murder charges against the doctors, but ultimately, um, that was heard by a grand jury, like a grand jury determined whether or not they were going to allow murder charges to be levied against these doctors, which I guess is really uncommon. Uh, like typically medical malpractice cases, it's not common for any of it to be like accused as murder. So it was like apparently kind of groundbreaking to even let a grand jury make that determination. Uh, but they determined that they were not going to allow murder charges to be levied against these doctors. Okay. But the grand jury did uh, charge the intern and resident with 38 counts of gross negligence or gross incompetence. 38 counts. Yeah. So the investigative body for those charges is the hearing committee of the state board for professional medical conduct. And that investigation alone took two years. So by the way, (laughs) All of this, it, it was like a decade and a half long, all of the these hearings and investigations, yeah. et cetera. It took forever. I always forget that when we hear about these cases initially, <laughs> right. how long yeah. the justice system takes. Oh, my God. Jesus. It, it's so, so, so And let's slow. not forget that the whole time that the father and family's pursuing this, they're mourning the death of an 18-year-old mourning. daughter. Right. Like, it's at the like, same time, and then they're reading disgusting things being written about the murder of their daughter yes absolutely (laughs) like it's it's horrifying to imagine what they were going through Mm. um and 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 the fact that this these kinds of things and and so many legal cases drag on for so long is such an emotional like suck on people the fact that it it takes forever to like see justice or even just see an end or be acquitted or whatever it is it, it staying with you for so long is is really awful. It's it's like toxic. It's toxic, and it, I think part of it is is the hopes that people will drop it and not want to go through it or won't have the money to pursue the type of representation. So, at the end of the proceedings, the committee unanimously decided that none of the thirty eight charges was supported by the evidence. <sighs> its findings were accepted by the full board and by the state's health commissioner. So. Under New York law, uh, the final decision in this matter rested with the Board of Regents, which really wasn't under any obligation to consider the commission's or the hearing committee's recommendations, but that that Board of Regents at its time only had one physician among its 16 members, and that Board of Regents voted to censure and reprimand the resident physicians for acts of gross negligence. So ultimately... Um, the verdict against the two residents was considered really surprising in medical circles because in no other case had the Board of Regents overruled the commissioner's recommendations. Wow. The hospital did admit that it had provided inadequate care and it paid a $13,000 fine. A $13,000 fine? $13,000, yeah. The hospital makes that much money in an hour, an hour probably. In 1991, however... The state's court of uh, state's appeals court completely cleared the records of the two doctors, saying that they had not provided inadequate care to Libby Zion. Okay. Simultaneously with all of these these cases and hearings, the Zion family 
was pursuing a civil case uh, where the two doctors and her primary care doctor were uh, being accused of, I don't know if it was negligence, I I didn't have the details on what the civil case was alleging. But ultimately, uh, I guess the findings were in the favor of the Zion family, and collectively those three doctors were ordered to pay a total of $375,000 to Libby's family for their pain and suffering. Which... I mean, there's no amount of money that brings a child back. So no, no. to say it's too much or too little is is whatever. Yeah. The jury also found that Raymond Sherman, who was the primary care physician, had lied on the witness stand in denying that he knew that Libby Zion was to be given pethidine, which I maybe is the generic name of the um uh antidepressant that she was oh, on. Oh, okay. So he basically said, like, oh, you know, anyway, so uh, he, he claimed he claimed not to know about the two drugs that she was the he claimed not to know that she was on one of the medications that caused the interaction. So they found him to be lying. Hmm. I don't I don't know that he ever faced a lot of repercussions for that, though. I didn't find out a lot of info. Yeah. The emergency room physician, as well as the hospital, as I said, were not found responsible for Zion's death in the civil trial. But the jury did decide that the hospital was negligent for leaving Weinstein alone in charge of 40 patients. But they also concluded that this negligence did not directly contribute to Zion's death. The trial, Mm, so if you are, if you're a web sleuth and you can find uh, really old episodes of things. The trial was shown on court TV. So I guess you could actually see it if you wanted to. Mm. But remember how I said that this is one of the most influential medical cases in sort of like ma- maybe semi-modern history? Yeah. Mr. Zion wasn't done there. So after Libby's death and the grand jury uh, indictment of the two residents, he continued to push for changes to medical practice to prevent future deaths like his daughter's. So he was not only trying to get justice for Libby, but to make sure that other uh, folks and families didn't have to go through similar things. Nice. I know, right? So 60 Minutes did a story on the Zion case and argued that the uh, young doctors had worked too many hours and did so under inadequate supervision. So the health commissioner ordered a committee to be created to assess the working conditions of hospitals and doctors. And through that investigation, they developed recommendations to address several issues, including uh, the usage of restraints on Libby, their medical medication management systems, and the amount of hours that residents work. So in 1989, New York State adopted the commission's recommendations that residents could not work more than 80 hours a week and that they could not work more than 24 consecutive hours and that attending physicians needed to be physically present in the hospital at all times. And then in 2003, the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education adopted similar regulations for accredited medical training institutions in the United States. Wow. Um, so that's kind of the the impacts that the case had. It really changed a lot about our uh, the way we manage care in hospitals, the way we manage uh, the knowledge of uh, prescribed medicines, and the amount of hours that doctors and physicians can work in hospital settings. I'll leave us with this quote from a doctor who wrote one of the articles that I read, who said that this really changed the way doctors are trained today, because when they were a doc, when they were um, a like first year resident doctor, they said it was not uncommon at all to work more than thirty six hours straight and to sleep in the hospital 
and average more than 120 hours per week working in the hospital. So they were talking about how like this case changed that, you know, sort of for the future that 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 kind of practice isn't isn't there anymore because of the case of Libby Zion. So a, a really, really tragic case, but a lot of folks feel that the family did a lot of really good, uh, a lot of um, good for the world by not letting her death mean nothing for for folks who come in for medical care and that they they want to set standards for medical practice that will prevent future tragedies like this. Yeah, that's that's a, that's the beautiful part about it is that, you know, at least at least she can be remembered hopefully through her legacy and through what her um family did after posthumously yeah. to to make sure this doesn't happen again. Wow, that's crazy. That was a really that was a crazy story. I never heard anything like that. Yeah. Good job. Um <laughs> thanks. So that's the true crime that inspired the first episode of Law and Order. Wow. A little piece of history there. I feel I feel much like on My Favorite Murder where they're like, and that's how everybody died. Like, well, yeah, um, I think I finally we, get how it. How do we end this episode? I would like to, there's one thing I, I would like to say. It, the, both the episode and the case that we talked about deal a lot with healthcare and healthcare um, and medical professionals. And we're in a pandemic and all of this. I just wanted to just touch on i know it's it, hopefully it's obvious from the way we're covering this but i wanted to just make sure that we're touching on that we have nothing but the utmost respect for first responders and those in the medical community and um especially in the um our current circumstances you know oh, we God, have nothing yeah. but the most incredible amount of respect and appreciation for everything that the medical community is doing out there right now yeah definitely so that's the end of our first episode matt we did it we did it. We all did it. Here we all are at the and end. We we didn't think we'd get there, and we're at the finish line. We did. You know, it's uh, kind of like those presidential fitness tests where you just never think that you'll God. actually do it, but and then um, you don't. I never actually did it, so I don't. Uh, yeah, I guess if this if this episode were the presidential fitness tests or my performance on the presidential fitness tests in the eighties, um, it would not have uh, completed. <laughs> no, it would, but it would be just as sad. Just as sad and just I'm as pretty, tragic as that last case. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that I failed almost everything in PE when I was a kid and that my like PE teachers took pity on me and would like uh, round me up to non-failing grades on running and things like that. Yeah. Um, I think I had the same, a similar experience. <laughs> but this episode, we we crossed the finish line and, he, and here we are. And we would love for you uh, to... To subscribe to us, to yeah. review us, to rate us, to tell your friends about us. Yes, please review us, rate us, and and get the word out there. Because if you loved this episode, boy howdy, wait till episode two. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I'm so excited for episode two. Honestly, Me like too. this was I had I had a lot of fun doing the research for this, but I'm really 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 excited about episode two. Yeah, I am very excited because I've done the research for episode two, but I haven't written it out yet, and. I'm I'm very excited for episode two. And I hope you are too. <laughs> yeah, we hope you are as well. Um, what's our email address, Matt? Oh, yes. So you can email us, send us feedback, your thoughts, your notes, corrections, anything you have out there, um, please send us. We have our email is rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com. And, you know, stay tuned next week for our, our second episode. Dun, dun.
Dun-dun. <laughs>